Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, Andrew Kashuni is a graduating senior at the University of Central Florida. His honors thesis on the influenza pandemic of 1918 demonstrates some interesting similarities between that pandemic and COVID-19. I think a good comparison would be the distribution of mortality race-wise, which is most of my work. We'll discuss family photo albums as historical documents. Regardless of what you decide to do with them, with these photographs and these albums, you don't want them to end up in a landfill. It happens all too often. And we'll talk about Senator Lori Wilson and the Equal Rights Amendment. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Kashuni is a graduating senior in the History Department at the University of Central Florida, where he's already taking courses toward his master's degree. Kashuni's honors undergraduate thesis is called Pestilence and Poverty, the Great Influenza Pandemic and Underdevelopment in the New South, 1918 to 1919. Andrew Kashuni will be participating in a panel discussion called Going Viral, Pandemics in Florida, during the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium, being held October 9th through 12th. Most of my work revolves around the history of infectious disease in 20th century U.S., and my thesis focused on the Spanish flu, the so-called Spanish flu, the flu pandemic in 1918 in the South. I study the historical epidemiology of the flu, so it's morbidity and mortality distribution in different communities throughout the South, throughout Florida. And recently I've been interested in the American empire and the flu pandemic in American colonies abroad. And of course, shaping post-World War I uh, international relations, U.S. foreign policy with how the U.S. conducted global health policy in the years to come. Andrew Kashuni has developed his research on the 1918 influenza pandemic into a digital presentation that allows for the visualization of his findings. I've recently become interested in spatial and geographic history of the flu uh, with the maps that I've been putting together with a friend of mine from uh, Tennessee Technological University, where we map flu mortality in 1918 in Florida to understand the different mortality uh, load between races, uh, African-American and white, in different counties throughout Florida in 1918. So that's where my work is currently at. 
I'm hoping to put together a, um, a larger project on not just quantitatively addressing the uh, historical epidemiology of the pandemic in Florida, but also having context and qualitative sources to understand the experience of suffering and responses to the pandemic. Today, COVID-19 is impacting African-Americans and other marginalized communities at a much higher rate. Kashuni says that the same was true a century ago during the influenza pandemic. The connection between the experience of disease, morbidity, the actual infection, and the death from it, mortality, is in the history of Florida, always disproportionately put on the marginalized and oppressed, and usually those without access to the written word. So their stories are kind of lost in the historiography, and that's why we haven't covered it extensively. Because according to most historians that come out of the turn towards the history of medicine in the second half of the 20th century, those stories don't exist. So in the uh, yellow fever epidemics in Tampa and Jacksonville in 1887 and 1888, and um, on to the 1918 pandemic, and then forward, the four big diseases of poverty of the South are yellow fever, malaria, hookworm, and pellagra. And in most of those diseases, uh, one would find heightened morbidity and mortality among African Americans and poor whites. Unique about malaria and yellow fever is that unlike influenza, which has environmental components in the sense that deforestation will move bird populations and they will uh, mix with local domesticated bird populations, thus spawning a pandemic. Uh, if it's a novel type of virus, yellow fever and malaria are vector-borne diseases. And because they're connected to mosquitoes, they have unique ecological tethers. So influenza can reach wherever people go. The higher the density of, a, of an environment, the better it is for the flu virus. The better it is for any kind of virus. But yellow fever and malaria are unique in that like dengue and uh, you know other um, Zika, other mosquito-borne diseases, it depends on where you live that will dictate who first suffers from the illness. And so African-Americans and poor whites live in swampy areas, rural areas, areas outside of the zones where the Department of Health has some control, uh, where hospitals are accessible. And so they are left to fight disease alone. The historian uh, Margaret Humphreys has written extensively on malaria and yellow fever and talks about how at one point in American history, it extended all the way to the southern uh, tip of Canada. But with industrialization and with public health initiatives in the north, it pushes malaria and yellow fever down towards the south where they don't see those kinds of initiatives for a wide range of reasons, corruption, poverty, and of course, the civil war. And so those that are left in the that death grip of yellow fever and malaria are those who don't have access or denied access because of their skin color. And it's the same thing with uh, 1918. Um, the difference is that it's now no longer tethered to a swampy region outside of a big city, but now it's widespread across the state. You know, military mobilization is occurring, which is facilitating the spread uh, into big cities with large bases. So Jacksonville has Camp Johnston. Pensacola is obviously a big military city. And so those cities uh, will be struck first because of mobilization. My work seeks to understand not the first initial deaths of the virus uh, from the, in the 1918 flu, 
but where mortality was most intense, which appears to be for black people in those rural areas where they would not have access to social services, to hospitals, just geographically. Even if they did live in cities, those basic services would be denied to them because of uh, legalized segregation. So the history of disease uh, is the history of race uh, to some extent. During the influenza pandemic of 1918, some scientists tried to blame the higher mortality rate of African-Americans on genetics. Andrew Kashuni. The fact that race and class have a connection to experience of disease and uh, death resulting from it isn't connected to the fact that, like in my research, African-Americans are biologically or racially different than anybody else. Eugenicists and race scientists in the early 20th century tried to prove that on numerous occasions, and they themselves couldn't agree on the biological difference or the immunological difference that predisposed African-Americans to disproportionate mortality versus whites and their, able, their ability to survive in some cases. It's less connected to the difference between race and much more connected to the politics um, that have been the bedrock of American history. And that is the politics of inequity and inequality that we can't deny that systemic racism hasn't had a steep role in shaping the way American pandemics and epidemics are experienced. While the circumstances of the 1918 influenza pandemic and today's COVID-19 crisis are quite different, some valid comparisons can be made. I think a good comparison would be the distribution of mortality race-wise, which is most of my work. Um, in 1918, in Florida, black people in 75% of, 76% of Florida counties had higher mortality rates than white people. The historians who had addressed Floridian mortality did not address the proportion to race. They addressed raw mortality numbers in which white people died more because there was more of them to die. But when those death numbers are put over population size corresponding to race, one would see that in most Florida counties in, in 1918, black people fared worse. The CDC just put out a study I think yesterday or two days ago, that analyzed mortality data in America for children, in which the children make up a very small minority of deaths. I think it's like 0.03% or something like that of COVID deaths in America are children. But almost all of them are Hispanic or Black. And so that is the consistency between epidemics and pandemics in America, and Florida is a part of that. We will have to address inequality and inequity more um, not just as historians, but as voters, as uh, scientists, as active agents in the democratic process. Andrew Kashuni is a history student at the University of Central Florida. His honors undergraduate thesis is called Pestilence and Poverty, the Great Influenza Pandemic and Underdevelopment in the New South, 1918 to 1919. Kashuni will be participating in a panel discussion called Going Viral, Pandemics in Florida during the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium being held October 9th through 12th. The conference will be accessible online at myfloridahistory.org.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program and watch our television series, Florida Frontiers. You'll also be able to access the virtual conference 2020 Hindsight, How Florida's Past Informs the Present and Future, October 9th through 12th. That's myfloridahistory.org. Photographs and memories Christmas cards you sent to me All that I have are these To remember you Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, we receive a lot of photographs and photo albums here at the Library of Florida History. The archival protection of these images is important. How is that done? On average, we'll get at least a few dozen separate donations of photographs, sometimes as a collection, sometimes an individual photo of something just related to Florida. We actually receive postcards more than anything else, and oftentimes those postcards will be an original photograph just printed on a postcard stock. But it's these albums that I find the most interesting because they tell a story beyond just the collection of images. You know, someone took the time to curate these images and and keep them over a long period of time. When you get these as a donation, it's special because they were really a part of someone's life for so long. One of the first things that we need to consider when the items are donated to the society in terms of preservation is to determine how the photos are affixed to the paper, what type of paper was used. So sometimes they can be glue, they can be pinned to the paper, and this can actually help us to date the approximate album if there are no other indicators. But sometimes the albums have to be disbound. We'll work to get them into like archival quality folders and into plastic sleeves and that sort of thing. We'll try to identify people and and common themes and places that are within the albums. Unfortunately, sometimes they're already falling apart. When we get these albums, they've been in an attic for years. So we really work to kind of assess their stability and figure out what the best way is to store them and to make them accessible for researchers. This whole process is only applicable for photos that are printed out, you know, prints or negatives. Nowadays, with photos that are born digital, the process of taking, printing, arranging, and eventually curating into photographic albums isn't the same, you know, although certainly people still do it. These historic albums are really unique and are absolutely worthy of protecting. Ben, you have here one of the larger donations of photo albums. Tell us about the Gladwin Family Collection. Yeah, so this is a collection that came to us from the Loxahatchee River Historical Society in Jupiter, Florida, back in 2019. They were contacted by the Gladwin family concerning donation materials that related to Jupiter, but they also had all of these photo albums, or about a dozen in total, that they had been collecting over the years. And each photo album deals in some way with Florida. They include at least some photographs of Florida. Now, these photos are not of, nor were they created by the Gladwin family, but rather they were purchased on internet auction sites simply as pieces of Florida history and pieces of Floridiana. So they were collected as part of a broader Florida history collection. Now, as an archivist, you know, we hope to describe each collection in the greatest detail possible. And that includes provenience or the origin of a collection or artifact. Where did it come from? We need to know where it came from, and how it got to where it is today. This provides a researcher with context. You know, with a collection like this, 
that sort of work is almost impossible. Trying to track down how and where these albums were transferred over time can be very difficult. You know, people grow old, family members either don't want these albums, don't know about them, or people just don't have family to pass them down, which can be, you know, just a really sad thing from a humanistic perspective. But that's the reality of, of the items that we carry with us throughout our life. So let's say, you know, an estate sale occurs, a collector acquires an album, then it's sold to an online bidder and sent sometimes thousands of miles away from where the photos were originally taken, and they're removed from that context. But after all of this, the historical importance isn't diminished. Sometimes the details held within these photographs are really, really important. You know, a building in the background, a parade event, the way people dress, the objects and the scenes that are deemed worthy at the time of photographing, all of this can be important for researchers. Let's look, for example, at this album. This is from the mid-1920s. And it looks like a family was on a driving tour of the east coast of Florida. Here's a photo of their rooming house in Miami and a few more of a small wood frame vernacular home in Delray Beach. So if these buildings still stand today, this gives a date for an architectural historian to go from if they're working on, say, designation on the National Register of Historic Places. This is an album that's beautiful. If you just look at the cover, it's got this hand-painted orange, and it reads Snapshots from Jacksonville, Florida. Here's another driving tour down the state of Florida, the east coast of Florida. This one dates from about 1910. And these are great street scenes of St. Augustine and Daytona. Here's one of a train coming into Daytona carrying Gentry's Dog Show. And there's a crowd sort of surrounding the train car. From that same album, you have a great shot of what looks like a hand sewn American flag wrapped around a citrus tree to help protect it from frost damage somewhere around the Halifax River area. You also see in some of these albums depictions of, of African Americans, which you'll see in this one from 1910. You know, for a lot of people that came to Florida, especially in the early 20th century, late 19th century, they would have had very little interaction with African Americans, especially in the South. So you'll see them appear in some of these photographic albums as almost a curiosity. It's like part of this tour, something new and different that they're trying to understand as part of the Florida history story. Now, some of these albums are, are less from the kind of touristy perspective, but are true family albums, including weddings and other family events like this one. It starts out with photos from a fishing trip in the Keys in the 1930s. It looks like something out of a Hemingway novel. But then the rest of the album, this other, you know, the other 50 or so pages, deal with another family and their life somewhere up north. You can see mountains in the background, but it really had nothing else to do with Florida except for that very beginning. They took a trip to Florida. What are some of the things people should consider when thinking about their own family photo albums? Well, you know, as I was talking about earlier, so many of us keep our family photo albums in our pocket, right? They're on our phone, which is great and convenient. But, you know, archivists think about the long-term disposition of items and, and how those items help to tell a story long-term. So firstly, I would suggest that people just get out those old family albums and, and try to identify people, years, places, any other details in the photos. That can be easier said than done, but take advantage of the memory of older relatives. You know, maybe ask grandma if she remembers who so-and-so was and write that into a little inventory sheet at the front of the album. It can be really, really important down the road. Next, I would think about how items are being stored. So in the archival world, we think a lot about the chemical processes involved in degradation of organic materials like photographic prints, negatives, and, and even the, the scrapbook paper that these albums are comprised of. These days, there are a number of archival supply companies that sell family photo album kits, and they provide a lot of step-by-step -step preservation guides that can help you arrange and store your albums you know, safely for decades to come. And lastly, just think about the long term. 
what do you want to happen to these albums? You know, who do you want to have these? Maybe even think about scanning and making printed copies for other family members. You know, it could be a fun project. You may even consider donating to regional and state historical societies, ultimately. What I always try and tell people is that regardless of what you decide to do with them, with these photographs and these albums, you don't want them to end up in a landfill. It happens all too often, and when it does, unfortunately, that history is lost. Well, you've inspired me to print some of the photos that have been sitting in my phone for years. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. If you'd like to see some of the photo albums we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. But we sure had a good time when we started way back when Morning walks and bedroom talks are how I loved you then This is Florida Frontiers. Kimberly Wilmot Voss will be participating in the panel discussion 100 Years of the 19th Amendment, Florida Women Breaking Barriers at the Florida Historical Society Virtual Annual Meeting and Symposium October 9th through 12th. Holly Baker spoke with Dr. Voss about Senator Lori Wilson and the Equal Rights Amendment. Dr. Kimberly Voss is a professor of journalism at the University of Central Florida in Orlando. She wrote an article in the fall 2009 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly Journal called The Florida Fight for Equality, The Equal Rights Amendment, Senator Lori Wilson, and Mediated Catfights in the 1970s. Dr. Voss recently talked to me about Florida's role in the battle for equal rights in the 1970s and the effort to add the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. It was simply that women should get the same rights men had. But this was something that was started in 1923. And, you know, it, it took decades uh, for this to even become something that was significant in the late 60s, early 1970s. And I often have students ask, well, why wouldn't women want equal rights? The challenge was that working women often wanted protection. And there was a long fight with labor unions. And Eleanor Roosevelt, one of our most significant first ladies, fought very hard for women to have protective rights. The Equal Rights Amendment meant that those protective rights that women had been given would be gone. During the women's liberation movement of the 1960s and 1970s, some anti-ERA groups expressed concerns that the Equal Rights Amendment would have a negative impact on women's roles in society. Despite opposition, In 1977, the amendment received 35 of the necessary 38 state ratifications. The amendment seemed destined to pass. Some of the things that folks were fighting for against the ERA were things like women shouldn't serve in combat. And now we think of that as something that was a right that was fought for. Uh, There were concerns that women would be forced to play football, that men would have to cook, right? And these are things I think nowadays sound fascinating. And some of it, again, was very simplistic, but some of it, of course, was very important. Women weren't making the same amount of money as men, not that they do now, but even worse. There wasn't childcare. This was a time period when you wanted a job, you had to go into the newspaper's help wanted ad, and they were listed by male or female. 
So it was indicative of who's going to be management and who's going to be a secretary. <laughs> you know, there was no secret. It was that simple. And what a lot of these women were fighting for was both complex, but also the day-to-day -day lives of trying to get by, trying to be a professional. And it came really from decades after World War II of trying to figure out what women's place in the workforce was um, and what a wife's place was. In the 1970s, Florida Senator Lori Wilson was one of the few women in the legislature. She was also one of the most outspoken supporters of the Equal Rights Amendment. Senator Lori Wilson was fascinating on so many levels. By the time she kind of got into politics, she was a divorcee, which doesn't seem like a big thing now, but back then that was a real challenge. She had two young children. She had an undergrad degree in mass communication. And it's worth saying at a time period where she was compared often to Gloria Steinem, she was beautiful. She was very media <laughs> TV centric. Um, in fact, someone mentioned that when the TV cameras were on the Senate floor, all you'd hear was snap, snap, snap. She was that person. She wore all white pantsuits, just kind of like the suffragettes did and like we've seen in recent years. And uh, one of the only people at that time to ever run as an independent in Florida. So when she ran, she had to run against Republicans and Democrats. So she was a big deal. And she became very quickly in the Senate, the push for the Equal Rights Amendment. And again, this was a constant fight. In the mid-1970s, an anti-feminist conservative movement eroded support for the Equal Rights Amendment. The 1977 ratification vote was a loss for Senator Lori Wilson and other ERA supporters. The Equal Rights Amendment came before the Florida legislature again in 1979 and 1982, but was defeated each time. More than 40 years later, the amendment still hasn't passed. Despite the decades-long efforts of countless women, the fight to add the Equal Rights Amendment to the U.S. Constitution continues. Senator Lori Wilson passed away in 2019 at the age of 81, but her advocacy for equal rights inspires and motivates new generations to fight for equality. Dr. Kimberly Voss. Women like Lori, they could be impatient and controversial, but they had to do it within their own agency, saying things in such a way that wouldn't upset people. And I, I like to think if Lori would be around today, she could maybe be more forceful and say things even stronger because it still matters. Senator Lori Wilson and some of her colleagues really thought they were going to make a difference at a time when it seemed like women were getting rights in our country. Um, and so it was a yearly back and forth, are we going to do it? And it sounded like Florida might, but ultimately um, it has not happened, although there are legal uh, theorists that think it, it still could happen. We're now 100 years after suffrage, and I feel like we talk about that a lot. But there was a whole other set of women that did important things, particularly in Florida, that get forgotten. And I hope we get the ERA. And if we do, it will be because of somebody like Senator Wilson. You know, to think that the Equal Rights Amendment has not passed, despite all the work she and her colleagues did for it, it's sad, but still important that we recognize her and the fact that women are not in the Constitution and that Florida could be the state that could push it forward. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa.
You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. Until then, find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Stay safe and have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.